Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hello, nudges. Welcome to another episode of Obehave. My name is Mike Hughes. We're recording from Ogilvy HQ in London. And our guest today is one of the few people who can lay claim to being an advertising legend. If you're over the age of 30, he's the soundtrack to your childhood evenings. And if you're under 30, he's your untapped well of creative inspiration. His new book, Creative Blindness and How to Cure It, is a collection of parables of how creativity can overcome the biggest of problems and may just be your new Bible for problem solving. In short, we are all creative. We can find inspiration from anywhere. Welcome to All Behave, Mr. Dave Trott. Thanks. Uh, Dave, I've read the book uh, this week and the thing I noticed about um, stories was that the most creative ideas often came under duress. Does creativity need constraints? Yeah, sure. The um, uh, George Washington called it the clarity of desperation. If you, the mind is quite lazy. So with the mind left to itself, your mind, anybody's mind, will just go on to autopilot because that's an easy way to live. If you don't have to think, you won't think. You'll just carry on chugging along the same route. Only when you absolutely have to think, like George Washington had to when he was fighting against the British, that's when he had to, he didn't want to sign, he didn't want the French on his side, he wanted to beat the British on his own. It was only when he realised he couldn't do it, the clarity of desperation made him realise he had to make a pact with the French. That was the only way he was going to yeah. win. So it's that kind of thing where it's no longer about what do I want, what do I like, it's about what do I have to do. Which is why um, I'll always work best with um, clients who are in trouble. Clients who are doing well don't need me. They, um, they just want to kick the can a little further down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're Coca-Cola or Nike, you don't need me. But if you're Apple or Adidas, uh, and uh, actually you're or, or one of the or Puma or one of the smaller ones, uh, or if you're about to get delisted and your job's on the line, that's when you really want someone like me because I will pull the plane out of a dive. And it won't be comfortable and you, you may not like it, but it will save your job and it will pull the plane out of the dive. And I've, that's happened to me a lot of times. And, and those kind of clients are very happy with me and we work very well together because we're not talking about do you like it or not? That's not the job. Do you mm-hmm. like it or not? The job is, is this gonna is this gonna turn it around? Is this gonna take share from whoever's number one? Is this gonna stop us getting delisted? Is this gonna reverse the trend? And in that case, um, when you want to do a job like that, we'll do it together. And it's less like cricket, more like rugby. Uh, more like That's you know. Interesting very aggressive and, and, and uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, you'll keep your job, you'll probably get a promotion, and um, you'll sell a lot more product, and we'll have solved whatever the problem is, and hopefully the competition is screaming and trying to get us banned, because that's how we know it's working. If you're in a, a position of comfort, you don't want the competition to complain, but if you're in a position of danger, you know when the competition is complaining is when your ads are working. If the competition can afford to ignore you, then it's not working. Do you think people, do you think advertising less risky now? Well, that's an appearance of risk. People think high profile and being controversial is risky. No, that's not risky. Uh, Spending your money and getting nothing for it is a risk. So actually what's risky is the invisible advertising at the moment that does nothing. The numbers are, 20 billion pounds spent each year in the UK on all forms of advertising and marketing, 4% remember positively, 7% remembered negatively, 89% not noticed or remembered. Now most people think the risk is in the 7% that's remembered negatively. 
But it isn't because at least it's remembered and at least it can still work. The job of advertising isn't to get liked. The job of advertising is to work. So you take something like Go Compare, which uh, nobody likes, but it works. Yeah. Now, the 89% that you can't remember, uh, like uh, if I said to you, um, who's that advertising for with the little G.I. Joe characters? Uh, you know the one I mean? The, the, yeah. Is it, who's that for? Is it money supermarket? Do you know, I don't know. You might be right. All I've got to think of is, wait a minute, that used to be mother, and what account did mother have? <laughs> I've got to get to it that way. Yeah, yeah. But now if I say to you, have you seen any James Corden advertising? Yeah. Have you? It doesn't he do voiceovers, I don't know. But have you seen any James Corden advertising? What, that he's in? Recently. But in the last oh, yeah, year yeah, the so. car advert. Yeah, who's that for? I don't know. There you go. Yeah. And they spent millions upon millions upon millions, and that's for Confused.com. Right. Yeah, then getting the sheep it. out the road and yeah. getting those colours. So all of this stuff is confusing until you get to Go Compare, which is awful, but you know exactly what happens on Go Compare. And when that song comes on the TV or the radio, they're currently doing five-second spots on the radio just with that song because that's all you need. <laughs> now, <laughs> Meerkats is the best of both worlds Yeah. because Meerkats, you remember it and you like it. But if, but if you can't, but whereas I like the G.I. Joe stuff very much, but, I, but it doesn't work because I don't remember who it's for. So there's two things here. There's liking it and there's having it work. Yeah. yeah. My art school was in New York and it was a Bauhaus art school. And what we were taught was form follows function. And what that is, is form follows function. The operative word function comes first and then comes form. Mm. Einstein said... If, I had an, if the world was about to end and I had an hour to save it, I'd spend 50 minutes on the, 55 minutes on the problem and five minutes on the execution. Because once I got the problem right, the execution would be easy. But if I didn't get the problem right, there would be no execution. Mm. So form follows function. Getting the function right yeah. is what's crucial. And the function of an ad is to make... If I ask a bus driver, what do you think the advertising ought to do? He's going to tell me... <coughs> uh, well, I suppose you ought to it ought to stand out, you ought to notice it, and I suppose you ought to remember it and who it's for, and I suppose you ought to remember why you should use it. What's yeah. good about it? Yeah. Now, a bus driver could tell me that. Yeah. You won't find a single person in advertising that can tell you that. Mm. They'll tell you heuristics, and they'll tell you memes and tropes, and they'll tell yeah. you whatever the latest trendy word is, but they won't be able to tell you basically what the point of advertising was in the first place, like a bus driver would. We knew more about advertising before we got into it than we do now. We then carry on forgetting about it and learning complicated junk. It's in e economics, it's called diminishing marginal returns. The more you add, the less it's worth. If you go back to what we originally knew the purpose of advertising was, that's where the value is. The smart people know that. And the frightened people <coughs> don't know that and they want to learn out of a textbook so they don't look silly in a meeting. Sorry. It's because we've done studies where if something rhymes, call it rhyme is reason, you remember it more. But this seems like, because jingles you know, used to be a big thing. But did you really need to do a study to find that out? When I was a little kid, however many years ago, coughs and sneezes spread diseases, or drink a pint of milk a day, or beans, beans means beans, times. Yeah. yeah. yeah? You don't need to do a, a hundred man study costing two million quid to work out why that's better. Yeah. It's, it's a mnemonic. What a mnemonic is defined as is a device to aid memory. Now, wouldn't you have thought that had been a, a start point for anything we do? If the name of it is critical, if I own the market, if I'm Coca-Cola or Budweiser, it doesn't matter if you remember my name because I own that market. Yeah. All I've got to do is increase people wanting beer or increase people wanting cola. I benefit most. But if I'm not the market leader, if I'm number two, three, four, five or six, then branding is critical because growing the market is no good to me because I get the minor share of it. What I must do is take share from whoever owns the market and I can't do that if you don't know my name. Because it just it seems fascinating then, so why don't people use these more? Is it just falling out of fashion? Because they're scared stiff. They want to look very technical and uh, they they... So how you look technical is you get complicated. Stupid people think complicated is clever 
Smart people know you have to go beyond complicated to get to simple. David Ogilvie said strategy is sacrifice. Yeah, got to take stuff away. Real strategy is stripping it back and stripping it back and stripping it back until you feel almost stupid for what you've got. When you're there, that's probably about right with the punters. Mm. I was saying to a client the other day, trying to tell the client the difference between market, sh- between market growth and market share. Yeah, yeah. And the client was saying, well, what do you mean? I'm saying, look, you knew this, market growth, you didn't know by those words, but before you ever got into advertising, you knew the difference between market growth and market share. And this is a serious client. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, all right, well, if you've ever advertised a second-hand car in Auto Trader." Yeah, I don't know if nowadays if people do that, but when yeah, I was a kid, we used to do that. Try and get rid of a second-hand car in Market Trader or look for a car. We couldn't never afford a new car, so we'd always buy a car from Market Trader, uh, from Auto Trader or Exchange and Mart, as it was in those days. And Now, if you were selling your second-hand car in Auto Trader, would you write, a car is a great thing because it can pick you up at home and it can take you to the office without getting wet, you wouldn't have to ride on public transport, you could listen to whatever music you want and there are three other seats to carry your friends, so a car is a fantastic thing, and then put your phone number at the end. Mm. Would you do that? (laughs) Of course you wouldn't, because that's market growth. (laughs) That's selling cars. (laughs) What you'd do is sell your car and why it's different to everybody else. You'd say, fantastic runner, Uh, 11 months left on the MOT, beautiful paintwork, only £2,000 or near offer, uh, one careful owner, and you try to make your car look better than all the other cars in Auto Trader. That's market share. Now, you knew that before you ever got anywhere near advertising. Mm-hmm. So how do we manage to forget that and think the only purpose of it is to get some planners to go and find an insight? Mm-hmm. And the insight, you've planners aren't planners anymore, they're sociologists. And all they do is study consumers and look for an insight. Now, I guarantee you, the insight you'll find will be a category insight, not a brand insight. You'll find, if you're advertising Nescafe, you'll go out and find an insight about the way people drink coffee. And then that insight will apply to all coffee. Mm. You won't be doing it. So you become, we become sociologists, not advertising people anymore, not realising I've got to sell Kenko against Nescafe, who own the market. Yeah? So we're not advertising people anymore. We're now sociologists doing uh, insights. Did you ever test your ads? Yeah, sure. I found testing was most useful when the client wasn't involved. That's interesting. Because once the client's involved, you don't then, it's not creative development anymore. Then it's, then it's jukebox jury. Then it's, the client hears it and the client says, oh, this hasn't worked. We can't run it. Yeah. Whereas... When the client's not involved, you can sit down and you can say, well, look, parts of this aren't working. Should we keep the whole idea but redevelop it? Or should we junk the whole idea? Is it worth changing it? Is there anything in here worth keeping? Mm. You can have those discussions (coughs) as creative development. But when a client's involved, you can't do that because the client will say, hang on, I'm paying for it. And... Now, account men and people who run agencies will always want the client involved because they want them to pay for it. But the problem is if the client's paying for it, then they want to be the guy who makes the decision, which is fair enough. So the problem with research goes back to, and it's not research, it's testing. Yeah. If you want research, don't have the client involved. Do it before you start writing the ads about who are the people we're talking to and find out absolutely everything you can. And then do it as you write the ads to create the ads rather than at the moment, it's once you've written the ads, you get 20 housewives in slough, stick them behind a two-way mirror, and ask them, do you like it or not? Well, that's not research, that's just testing. The thing that when we do testing as well, is when you're testing messages or visuals, I always think, but you want to test them against 10 other visuals. You want to test them against nine other messages, because it's yours going to stick out. Well, that's true too, but if you take, like, John Webster was the guy who used to use research best. Yeah, he was he the smash? John Webster? Well, he was everything, well, everything, everything yeah, yeah. you know. But he did a lot of characters, didn't he? He did a lot of characters, but what John would do, if you take it before John started, like, um, uh, Sugar Puffs, I think, came to him, uh, and um, 
So John says, okay, the first thing he notices, before he gets into the product at all, let's talk about the audience. So he gets John Steele, the research guy, and he talks to him, and John have an hour or so with him, just talking to him about the audience, what they wear, what TV they watch, what plays they like, what newspapers they read, what makes them laugh, what do they think about their kids. And in the course of talking about their kids, John Steele had said, yeah, the mums think it's, uh, they love to, you know, all be sort of all their little monsters. Like then John thought, little monsters, that's really cute. Little monsters. So he decided he'd, he'd have a, a little monster and then he thought of Cookie Monster off Sesame Street and he had a little tiny monster uh, and he made it the Honey Monster. Took it out, tested it, and mums hated it because he's always breaking things and he's naughty and he's aggressive. And the kids hated it because he's so small. He's no fun. He's a little monster like that. Yeah. So John thought, okay, well, let's keep the monster idea, which I like, but let's take on board what they've said. What if instead of that, the monster's huge, but with the brain of a child? So he loves his mummy, so the mums will love it. Mm. He doesn't realise how, how he keeps breaking things. He can't help it. And the kids love it because he's a huge monster. Yeah. And he can be your friend. And then you've got Honey Monster, which absolutely put sugar puffs on the map. And, and John does everything like that, using research to develop whatever he's done. Mm. You take any of his stuff and, and you don't have an idea totally in a room in limbo. And then when you've finished absolutely every detail of it, put it out and test it, you, you include, for it to be research, you include that in the development process. And in order to do that, you can't really have a you can't really have a client involved because usually they won't want it developed. They're going to have a view on it because they're paying for it. Do you think some sometimes you're only as good as your brief? Well, it, yeah, but it depends who writes the brief. The brief the brief shouldn't be the ceiling. The brief should be the floor. The brief's the start point. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, Did you ever re kind of rewrite briefs to go, that isn't... Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. I mean, if you take Bill Birnbeck, when a client came to him and said, and Bill Birnbeck is a copywriter, and the client came to him and said, um, uh, leave his bread, leave his rye bread. And the client said, it's, it's you know, wrapped up sliced white bread on sale in the supermarkets. And the client said, this isn't, my bread isn't selling, and I don't know what to do. And Bill Birnbach said, well, where are you advertising it? And the client said, well, the Jewish Chronicle. Mm -hmm. and, Lee, and Birnbach said, well, that's exactly what you're doing wrong. You're advertising it to Jews. And the client said, well, what do you mean? Jews eat rye bread. Birnbach said, yeah, but Jews eat fresh rye bread from the bakers. They don't eat packaged rye bread. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to do market growth for rye bread, which means you're going to have to talk to Gentiles, which means you don't go in the Jewish Chronicle. So what we're going to do with your budget that you spend in Jewish Chronicle, we can put that all over the New York subways and we can have this campaign. You don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's, <laughs> where he had a young black kid eating a rye bread sandwich and loving it, or an Irish policeman, or a, a red Indian, what they now call Native Americans, or a Chinese guy, or all eating great looking rye bread sandwiches and loving it in the line, you don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's real Jewish right. <laughs> Levy's became the, amongst Gentiles, everybody started trying Levy's, it became the biggest selling rye bread in New York State, then the biggest selling rye bread across America. And now, in every delicatessen you go in states and order a sandwich, they'll say, uh, white wholemeal or rye. What bread do you want it on, white wholemeal or rye? He's yeah. turned it from, because- he not Do you want it or not, it's what kind do you want? Yeah, because you don't just sit there and the, you know, the brief is, Tiny, maybe. Maybe you've got a vision that's much bigger than the brief. Yeah. If you're creative, certain. Yeah, yeah. uh, by creative, I don't just mean in the creative department. Yeah. I mean, that's what the book is about. It's about real Edward de Bono creativity is whatever we do, we should do it creatively. And at the moment, people just don't see creativity. It's all around us. They're blind to it and they don't see it. So their creative muscle will atrophy. And the... Most, pe most people in the creative department, in the so-called creative department, aren't very creative. They're copywriters and art directors. I've known some really creative planners and account men and media buyers. And creativity is a quality in what you do. Now, what I just told you there about Birnbach, that was creativity in media buying, in, in media. And he's not even a media guy, he's a creative. 
So you carry on doing your job the same old way, you'll get what you always get. And people are scared stiff to just get in touch with their creativity. As Steve Jobs said, the greatest lesson in life is that absolutely everything in life was designed or made or invented by someone that's no smarter than you. <laughs> and you can change it. Yeah. And once you know that, you really have freedom to be effective. Now, creative blindness is you don't see that. You see everything as unchangeable and I can't affect it and I'd better just accept it as it is. So the book is about freeing you from that. Just develop your muscle. The mind, the creative mind, is not a well that if I take more out of it, there's none left. It's a muscle. The more you use it, the better it's gonna get. Now you can use that whether you're a client, whether you're an account man, you can be, if you look at guys like Rupert Murdoch or, or uh, apart from Steve Jobs, Rupert Murdoch or Richard Branson, they're amazingly creative guys and they're clients, you know? You, you, uh, you don't have to be in the so-called creative department. Part of what's killed this business is calling it the creative department. Yeah. So everybody in the creative department thinks they are creative and most <laughs> of them aren't. And everybody outside the creative department thinks they daren't be creative because they don't know about visuals or how to write headlines. But that's not creativity, that's style. What you see in art galleries isn't creativity, it's style. Yeah, because the, the thing I think that I took from the book the most was in, in a lot of situations when people are up against it, where you see you use a lot in, uh, you've gone kind of throughout history where you've seen, uh, you talk about your, your uncle who had his own uh, cleaning business during the recession. Yeah. And basically, it's how do you find opportunities to what you've got available to you? That's what yeah. kind of came to it from me. Well, see, creativity is another word for entrepreneurialism, mm. which actually is another word for street smarts. <laughs> yeah. All of those are, how do you outthink other people? How do you look at something that everybody's looked at and think of something no one's thought of? And I like a lot of stories like that because it shows you beyond just sitting down thinking the obvious creative creativity. How do you find creativity in places where you just wouldn't totally, totally wouldn't expect it and how can that make your mind open up to creativity so that when you come back to your job, you can bring creativity to, to your job, yeah? Whatever your job. Yeah, because it, it didn't feel like it was a book about creativity as much as whatever your problem is, there's a way around it. Well, that's that, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Call it creativity, yeah, call yeah. it street smarts, yeah, yeah. call it entrepreneurialism. Yeah. The uh, uh, Wherever you look at it, anything that takes your breath away, where you look at it and you think, God, I'd never have thought of that. Yeah. That's brilliant. It reminded me of the work that you did with Oxfam. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. So, I mean, you tell it, but the, the, the thing that I really liked was you didn't have any budget and you didn't have any media and you had a huge problem. Yeah, well, we, um, uh, we, uh, we wanted to get the, the main problem with the third world debt. Oxfam told us about the third world debt and half a, half a million little babies dying every year as a result of the third world debt. Yeah. But it wasn't government debt, it was private debt to do with the banks. And it's in, in the UK, it's the high street banks. And uh, how do we get the banks to, the debt can't be repaid. How do we get the banks to consider, to start, the start to at least have a discussion about the bank, about the debt? I talked to some of the bankers and the bankers said, yeah, we don't mind writing off the debt. We put aside enough money to write off the debt, but we can't be the only ones to write it off. If the other banks don't mm. write it off, we can't write it off. Our shareholders wouldn't accept that. Mm. So I thought, well, then first off, you've got to get inside the banks and you've got to get a discussion going amongst the banks, amongst themselves. You've got to make them feel bad about it. You've got to make them know about it and feel bad about it. So much so that they'll get together and maybe they'll do something. So my job, remember, advertising isn't marketing. Advertising is the voice of marketing. Yeah. I don't have to solve it. I have to create a, 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 a high profile enough that the discussion happens and people then decide whether or not yeah, yeah. to solve it. I'm not marketing. 
I'm, I'm the voice of marketing. So I thought, well, how do we get this inside the, ba- the banks? Um, um, and we thought, well, we've got no money, we've got no client, Oxfam's not involved, they can't get involved because this is political, not charity, and they'd lose their charitable status. They've yeah, told us the problem, right. yeah, yeah. and then they've checked out. So the problem is, how do we get people to start discussing it and feeling bad about it? And just, how do we get bank employees in the bank to start talking at the people at the top? And so we thought, uh, trouble is there is no media in the banks. There's no radio, there's no TV, there's no posters, there's no nothing in the banks. And even if there was, we've got no money. And then we thought, hang on, money, paper, that could be media. What if we started to write on paper, the bank's dealing a lot of paper. What if we started to write on paper? Now, if we did that, the good news, is, the bad news is the good news. We'd be defacing currency, and that's illegal. And if we deface currency, which is illegal, the banks have to take the currency out of circulation. And in order to take it out of circulation, they don't let you take money out of circulation lightly. You have to fill in forms in quadruplicate, which then go to four <laughs> different departments, which have to fill in each fill in forms in quadruplicate. So anything we write on those banknotes gets replicated 20 times at least inside the bank. <laughs> so we can create our own media inside the bank, and we still do it with... Uh, do you um, still write them now? Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, I've done them over the years. Just me, I've done about a quarter of a million quid's worth. I've done about the other kids. Do you ever uh, see them back? In? Oh, yeah, I get them back in stores and things like that. And um, there's a nice white space. For the benefit on the, of the tape, it says stop banks... Killing children, cancel the third world debt. Yeah, on each note, it will just say, stop banks killing children, cancel the third world debt. And you'll have to replicate that about 20 times. And that gets taken out of... Inside a bank, in order for it to get taken out of circulation, yeah. And uh, what I like was, that's back to basics. Yeah. How do we do do advertising when we've got no money? When we actually got to be a little bit creative, when we've got no client, we've got no money, we've got no anything. If we believe in this, it's propaganda how do we use it and so we could do that and we did this a similar thing when we were doing London Docklands uh, London Docklands uh, came to us and they'd been advertising for eight years there were eight square miles of mud was what London Docklands was <laughs> and they've been spending millions to get people to come in and move out there for six years eight yeah, years something yeah. like that these Cliff Mitchellmore commercials, they've been running again and again and again. And their strap line was, London doesn't just mean business, London's getting on with it. Which is a pretty meaningless strap line. Yeah. And they were getting killed by all the other greenfield sites, Telford, Milton Keynes, Peterborough, Welsh Development Authority, who were all running these beautiful ads with greenfields and cows and little girls with red balloons and you could take your family swimming after work and all these nice things mm-hmm. like that, yeah? And um, we thought, well, if you're actually going for market share, we've got to kill the competition. And so we thought all they're talking about is leisure. And actually, if you're going to spend money moving your company there and putting up a building, it's not about leisure. It's about business. I mean, where do you want to be doing business? Next to London or out in the middle of Wales? And we had this strap line that we put on everything we did, which is why move to the middle of nowhere when you could move to the middle of London. And we took all their advertising, <laughs> which said only two hours from London by train, only two and a half hours from London by train. Only We took all their advertising clips and we had a head, big headline that said, what's the point in moving out if you've got to keep coming back? And everything we did was about, you're not in this for leisure and to look at cows, you're in this for business. And where you do business is in London. Mm. What's the point in moving out? If you, what's the point in moving out if you've got to keep coming back? Why move to the middle of nowhere when you could move to the middle of London? And it was so successful that the other Welsh Div- 11 MPs tried to get it banned and the <laughs> Minister for the Environment tried to kill it and we had to tell him by that time it's too late, the money's been spent and we're on air. <laughs> and then we know it's working when the competition... And now, if you kind of look at London Docklands now, mm. it's not eight square miles of mud anymore. <laughs> Now it's Canary Wolf, and it didn't have a building there when we started. And, and now I'm not saying it's just us, because it's not just us, but it's our job to be the voice. And the same with, uh, well, I mean, I could, I could talk for ages about all the different examples, but you isolate what our job is, and then we can do our job. 
What we don't try and do is everything. We're not marketing. We've got other guys who do marketing. We are the voice of marketing. And when we do that, we can then provoke an environment in which what we want to happen happens. Because it's interesting, because you're kind of pinching attention a lot of the time. You're not going to invent someone's attention. You know, they, if you don't have their attention, they'll give it to someone else. Well, exactly. And I th- like we have that sometimes where we're like, well, what do we want them to stop doing or went elsewhere? And it kind of reminds me that you're not, you're not inventing market share a lot of the time. You're just pinching it off someone else. But you're going to get it off. But that's the lack of creativity. That's what I talk about a lot in the book. That's the lack of creativity. You knee jerk into. <coughs> What do we What do we want? And and you go for the obvious. And of course, that's what the mind does. It goes for the obvious, mm-hmm. and there's no creativity in that. Yeah. You do, everybody can see you doing that. Everybody knows you're doing that. What's new and original about that? What's new? Rory says. Um, I always quote. He says, uh, "Creative people have a fear of the obvious, but they must sell their work to people who have a love of the obvious." <laughs> Clients are frightened of the word creativity because they think it just means whizzy, wacky stuff to win awards at Cairns. Well, of course, that isn't creative at all. That's just stylish nonsense. Uh, ads done for people who don't speak English. No wonder what wins is flashy visuals because they don't speak English. In our country, our, if we use language that uses our slang, uh, mnemonics that work in this country well obviously they're not going to work amongst a jury of Japanese and and Russians and Chinese are they which Cairns is so of course that's ridiculous that's not what I'm talking about by creativity that's just a style exercise Yeah. yeah yeah creativity is what do we think that no one else has thought and that's that's your, your, those examples the reason I put different examples is so you can see whether that's in sport or whether that's in military, or whether that's in business, or just wherever that is, just think what no one else is thinking. Get back upstream all the while, and and keep getting upstream of the problem. Don't try to solve the problem at the same level as everybody else. Get upstream of it and solve it before it becomes this problem, and straight away you take the rug out from under everybody else. Yeah. Because it's interesting that when, a lot of the times, the the people in the book who kind of overcome the biggest challenges is when they think about it differently or no one else has thought about it. And um, there's an interesting, because sometimes we can see, because everyone loves data now and there's a lot of data flying about. And you talk about this in the book sometimes where we accept what the data says. Yeah. And... Well, that, yeah, that, Sorry, just, that, that just makes you lazy. You let the data do the work instead of thinking. Well, it reminded me of something that Alex Fer- something that happened to Alex Ferguson. Apparently, he sold. Do you remember Yapstam? This is going to get a bit niche. Yeah, and it wasn't. No, no, fair enough. I know exactly the story. And then afterwards, he said it was the biggest mistake he ever made. He sold Yapstam because he thought he was getting lazy. And afterwards, he realised it because he was getting better. He didn't have to make every tackle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I totally understand it. Two, two, one of my favourite examples, uh, <coughs> when I was at college in New York, uh, a guy there was a, uh, he, he just got there from the army in Vietnam. He was a, a captain and um, he'd done the GI Bill of Rights. They'd pay your fee. And he was telling me about um, the, the Viet Cong versus American technology. And uh, Americans had every kind of technology there was. And what the Viet Cong had was what they called the rule of thumb. Americans were still losing a lot of, a lot of uh, helicopters to ground fire. Yeah, and yeah. they couldn't work out how yeah. they were losing so many. Co- and the Viet Cong had what they called a rule of thumb. And you can do it for yourself in the street. What you do is you hold your thumb up. And if the helicopter is bigger than your thumb, you can shoot it down. And if it's smaller than your thumb, you can't. Hmm. Now. That's how the Americans were losing so many helicopters, because the Viet Cong, with no technology, no nothing, just had the rule of thumb, just common sense. Yeah. And same thing. The Americans decided that they were going to... The Ho Chi Minh Trail was the one thing that the North supplied the South. And if they could cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they could cut the supplies to the South and win. So they went up with their phantom jets and... 
they knew where the bridge was. They see the bridge be built, and every night they they go and destroy the bridge, and within forty eight hours the bridge would be rebuilt, and they'd go back and destroy it again, and then within forty eight hours it'd be rebuilt, and they'd go back and destroy it again. And I went on like that until the end, of, and the, the South still kept kept getting supplied. The Americans couldn't work out, and after the war. They told the Americans that bridge was a fake made out of plywood to attract them into destroying it. What really happened was downstream was a ford about a foot under the, wall, under the river. They'd built a concrete ford for the, for, the, for the trucks to go across that you couldn't see from an aeroplane. Yeah. But they keep rebuilding this fake bridge because that would attract the Americans. And they keep trying to destroy and they wouldn't look for the ford. So... Again, use use their technology as a disadvantage. He was in the the Steve Jobs story is really interesting because uh, um, when you talk about how we reframed a thousand songs in your pocket, and those there's also one about the the lady who was on the Titanic, the Britannic, and the. The third ship, or yeah, sister the third ship, yeah. yeah. And your point is, is she the look? She called herself the unluckiest person in the world. Well, no, I say she could be the unluckiest yeah. person in the world. She called herself the luckiest person in the world because she'd survived all three sister ships, all sank with her on, and you'd say that's the unluckiest person in the world. She said, "No, I'm the luckiest person in the world." Because sometimes creativity can be seen, or, or make something creative is creating value where there was no value. Well, it's looking at what everybody else has looked at and seeing something nobody else has seen. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, if you develop your creative muscle, you can then pass it on to your staff. <coughs> and then that's what I used to do in my department. If you can get everybody thinking creatively, you can have five people doing the work of ten easily mm. and, and beating them because they're, because they're more creative. The, uh, uh, if, if, if you think, I mean, Steve Jobs, one of my favourite stories of Steve, Steve, it will seem obvious now, but at the time it wasn't, when he launched um, uh, the iPhone, or no, the, I, the iPod it was, yeah. the music one, yeah. uh, and 10,000 songs in your pocket, obviously every, all the trendy people are going to want it, the early adopters, how am I going to, but they're all going to keep it in their pocket while they listen to it. So what am I going to do to let everybody see that the early adopters, the evangelists, are using this? The trendy guys are all using it. And no one could think of anything you do because there's your iPhone and there's your iPod and it is what it is. And if it's in the pocket, well, there's nothing we can do. And what he did, it seems obvious now, but what he did that no one else did, he said, well, what about the thing that's nothing to do with us? The headphones and the lead. Everybody buys the same old headphones and, and sticks mm. them into the same old black headphones and no one's ever touched that. What if I didn't just redesign the iPod, I, I gave white headphones so they didn't look like anybody else's. So even if yeah. you've got your iPod in your pocket, everybody will see from the white headphones, they'll know what, the, what, what you're listening to. Yeah. And nobody could see that coming because it just didn't occur to anybody else to touch headphones. Headphones were nothing to do. You, that was just a, an extra thing that you bought. Mm. Didn't even come with it. It was just a, and that's really amazing when you, when you look at it and see that. It's like Brian Clough became the first guy to pay a million pounds for a goalkeeper. And everybody thought he was mad for Shilton. And Clough's attitude was, <coughs> he won't let a goal in our net. Now, if, I, if no goal goes in our net, Wherever, whichever net the ball goes in, we win. So never mind buying more strikers. Everybody mm. else was paying more and more and more money for strikers. Clough paid a million for a goalie. And that year, Forrest won the league, and the next year they won the European Cup, and the year after that they won the European Cup. Forrest. You can't even find them <laughs> on the map. Yeah? This is, this is Clough. Or, or Muhammad Ali. Uh, nobody could believe in, in rap and in rhyme. He would predict the round he was going to knock the guy out in mm. and then knock him out in that round. And everybody thought, it, first off, everybody thought it was a joke and he's bigger. And second off, when it happened two, three, four times, everybody began to get scared stiff. And their game, their 
they were no longer, they, this is guys obviously got powers we've never seen before. And then the game became to be, not is have I got any chance of beating Cassius Clay as he was then, uh, have I got any chance of beating him, wasn't even on the cards. Have I got any chance of even surviving the round he mentions? And he just beat absolutely, now afterwards, what he admitted was most of the guys he fought, he could have knocked them out in the first or second round. But he actually held them up until the round he predicted because it was much more powerful on everybody else mm. rather than just knocking them out in the first or second round to predict a round and then have them go down in that round. It had a much better effect, effect on all his subsequent opponents. You know? Now, creativity in, bo in boxing. Because a, a lot of the time when kind of it seems when uh, the stories in the book, when people are over trying to solve problems, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of crowdsourcing creativity. You know, it's not like they've all sat around and they've gone, right, <coughs> let's get 10 people in a room and see how we tackle this problem. Yeah. It seemed a lot of, and you strike me as the kind of person who would, when you write in ads, were you kind of, was it a kind of solo process of, just writing as many ads as you could. Because now there's some school of thought it's like creativity can be not outsourced to everyone but get people in a room and then you can brainstorm. Well, you see, I, when I do that, well, I was a creative director and I was a good copywriter, but I was a terrific creative director. Yeah. And, and as a creative director, what I do is exactly what I'm talking about here. Let's look at what everybody else is doing and let's do it different. Mm. Everybody else is hiring heavyweights for a fortune. For what they're paying for heavyweights, I can get six juniors. And I can train those guys up, and four of them, it, it, all the effort is on picking the hungry guys, not the most talented guys, the hungriest guys. If I pick the hungriest guys, four of those, are gonna, I, can, I know I can make them good. Two of them won't, I'll have to let those go and then get in two more. Now I'll have three teams for the price of one heavyweight team, and they'll be as, at least as good as the heavyweight team. Now. How do I get those guys working? So I'd have uh, wipe clean boards in the corridor with work everybody's got on it, whatever they're working on, TV or print or... Yeah, yeah. And I'd say to them, when you've done your trade ads, you can go along and look at what everybody else is working on and take, uh, take their TV or whatever else you want to work on. So this is up to whoever's got it. If you can be quicker, you can do it quicker. And if you'd rather go over to pub, well, some one of the other younger kids <laughs> is going to come along <laughs> and do it. And then also I'd look at it and uh, why, did, why was all the panic about having not enough time to work? Well, let's look at it. The panic is because why have we only got a week or two left before presentation date when we knew what the presentation date was going to be three or four months ago? So instead of starting at the briefing date, let's start at the presentation date and work backwards. We know now we're going to be presenting in June Okay, let's work back and divvy that. We need a month, so uh, the brief needs to come in in May. So they need a month for research, so theirs needs to come in in eight. They, they need to be finished with their research by April. The client needs to brief them, so he needs to be finished by March. So you need to be doing your talking now because you've got four weeks from now until March, which is very different the way it normally happens. Oh, we've got four or five months. Don't worry, we'll carry on talking and talking and talking, and nearer the date, we'll get the brief in. And blimey, now there's only two weeks left. No, let's reverse the whole process. Yeah? That's interesting. So always, whatever you're doing, you can look at it creatively. Uh, the, just, just by, I've, I've got one of the guys I, I do work with, he's an entrepreneur, series of billionaire. Serious guy. And his motto is, do it, then fix it. Yeah. Yeah? Which you is don't sit around and wait until it's perfect because you've wasted all that time and you probably haven't got the right answer anyway and now your competitors have got to jump on you. Just do it, get started, and the things that need fixing won't be what they thought you were any, they were anyway. And meanwhile, you've got to jump on everybody else. That's the ethos of the big tech companies, apparently. Just get it out there and, and just let people use well, it. Well, this guy's for 30 years, that's been how he's worked. And like I say, he's a billionaire. Do it, then fix it. Did, did you ever write... Were you always, when you were writing, or in, was ideas like, did you do it on your own, or was it a room? Could you ever kind of brainstorm with people? Or It depends, you see. Um, 
Bill Birnbach said uh, principles endure, formulas don't. Yeah. So I've got a lot of principles, but I haven't got any formulas. Yeah. That will change according to what we're doing. They say don't reinvent the wheel. That's bollocks. Reinvent the wheel every time. Yeah. Sit down, whatever you're doing, <coughs> do. Go right back to the beginning on that process and reinvent the wheel, and you're going to come up with something new. If you don't want to come up with anything new, then don't reinvent the wheel and carry on doing the same old thing. So, you know, sometimes I'd have to do it on my own. A lot of time I'd sit down and do it with other people. As a creative director, a lot of times I'd have two or three or four teams bringing it to me, their, their answers. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, sometimes if the client would have come up with something really exciting, sometimes it might be the planner, sometimes it might be the media guys. Well, we kind of mentioned this before when we uh, spoke to David Weddy, was it? And he said, so he took your, your agency burned, I'm laughing, it's yeah. so funny, your agency no, no, burned no. down. And uh, he took he took your agency in kind of that day. Yeah. Um, and he said he was blown away by just the sheer amount of ideas that you would come up with. Sure. Uh, do, is that kind of is it a numbers game, in a sense? And then you start to chip away. And well, it, dep- it depends on. I mean, it's like football. You don't you don't just have one David Beckham. You have David Beckham and Roy Keane. Mm. And. And one Paul Scholes. And Keane is all about energy and drive. And Beckham's all about style and a perfect cross. And the strength is in having different people to do different things. Yeah. So I would put different people on different accounts. So I'd take uh, Paul Grubb and Dave Waters uh, were, were like very good on mainstream stuff. So I'd put them on Cadbury's. Uh, Steve Henry and Axel Caldicott were a, a bit more refined and a bit posher. Steve had been to Oxford or somewhere, Cambridge. So I'd put him on premium accounts like Holston Pills. Yeah. You, you, you don't put Steve on Cadbury's. You don't put Paul Grubb and Dave Waters on Holston Pills. You figure your guys to what's wanted here. Holston Pills is a premium lager, cost more than other lagers. We're going to need premium advertising. So you put Steve and Axel on that. Cadbury's. Is mainstream. We have to get it into the language for ordinary people. So we put uh, Dave and Grubby on it, Big and Grubby on it. The it's like putting a football manager putting a team together. Yeah, right. Tills for the job. Was that your intention in the book for people to read? Because when I was reading it, I was going, "Oh, that's like this other thing that I've been thinking about." Mm. And I think that's the beauty in it. When when you kind of give these eight steps to better this or eight steps to Good copywriting. Yeah. Then that's, that's all right. Okay, well that's a frame. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Whereas if you go, here's how someone else did it. And also as well, the the thing that I just wanted to touch on a bit was the power of a story, is a much better way of explaining something to someone. And you talk mm. about that chapter in the book, where you talk about how when someone wanted to rem- remember something, I think it was your uncle when you were climbing the ladder because you remember. Oh yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That's rem- not a, that's not a story. That's a mnemonic. Right. I mean all this stuff about stories. That's just the latest gimmick. Yeah, because everyone says they're a storyteller. Storytelling. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm not a storyteller. I know I tell stories. Mm. I solve problems. Yeah. And sometimes they might involve words, and sometimes they might not. And sometimes it might be about pictures. Sometimes it might be about training to staff. Sometimes it might, you know. But you don't start off from, I'm a storyteller. Now I'm restricted to whatever that is. Mm. That's one of your options. Yeah. You know, like brand is one of your options. <laughs> they're all they're all one of your options. Yes. Uh, so the um, that was a mnemonic, my uncle just saying to me, because he was a fireman. And when he saw me going up the ladder, when everybody climbs a ladder, you grab the sides of the ladder and you climb up. And my uncle said to me, You don't want to climb it like that, boy. That's how builders climb. The proper way to climb, where we work, we're firemen, where we work, is a lot of smoke and a lot of water. And if you slip, you want to be climbing it holding onto the rungs. Because then, when you slip, you don't fall. If you're holding onto the slides, the sides, you can fall all the way down. Yeah. But if you're holding onto the rungs, you can't fall any further. And uh, But because it was a mnemonic, how a builder climbs versus how a fireman climbs, I always remembered it. Yeah. And... <coughs> We always, mnemonics in the dictionary, it says it's a device to aid memory. Why wouldn't we want that? You know? You look at all your mates. I bet you most of your mates have got nicknames. 
<laughs> Especially if two of them have got the same name. Yeah. Do you know, just on the way here, my wife was telling me a story, uh, something about one of one of her friends called Joe, and I said, is that Big Joe or Little Joe? <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and yeah. the, you, because your memory needs a device to help it. Mm. That's what Leo Burnett used to do in the States. He built Marlboro that way. And um, Steve Jobs built Apple by uh, think different. He didn't say it correctly, think differently. Mm. You know, you, 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 maybe you're incorrect. Uh, <coughs> the, the Leo Burnett built Jolly Green Giant, built Marlboro, built Tony the Tiger, built all these guys with a mnemonic. <laughs> mnemonic. Yeah. And if our media, our media isn't papers and books and posters, and TV sets and laptop. Our media is the human mind. Where we want to get to is the mind. So we need to look at how the mind works, not how laptops and things. That's technology. That's technology. Yeah. We've got technicians for that. Yeah. What we want to know is how the mind work works, and then we'll find technologically the best way we can afford to do that, most effective way to reach it. But we don't start with the technology and dump it out and hope it works, we start with the end point, which is the human mind, and work backwards from there. Behavioural psychology, that's one of the things I did at art school in New York. And um, it being art school, it was kept to a simple level where we could understand it in a useful level. And truly, as much as anything else we did, that was the really, really useful. Here's your end point. Let's find out how it works. Well, I was, I I was going to say this because... It, uh, you know, kind of understanding human nature and understanding people. You just seem to be instinctively good at that. Do we? It's not. You know, I don't think it's instinctive. I mean, part of it is coming from the bad side of a big city. I'm, I'm coming from um, the East End or yeah, East, East London. Yeah. You have to. You have to know common sense and, and, yeah. and street smarts. Walking out your front door in the morning. Then my art school was in Brooklyn. When Brooklyn was a lot rougher place than it is now, and. Very, very similar to East London, and add that in with a little bit of psychology, and you put them together, and you mm. think this stuff psychology. If I just pick out the bits which make sense in yeah. street smart terms, yeah. in creative terms, in entrepreneurial yeah. terms, and put the t put the things together, you can, you're going to end up with behavioural economics in a way that makes sense for ordinary people, because behavioural economics is perfectly common sense. It's just expressed in such difficult mono polysyllabic terms that it sounds as if it's really, really difficult. And really it isn't, it's all just common sense. Yeah. You know? It's all stuff most people knew, <coughs> but they don't know it in those terms. Mm. But if I take it and I explain it <coughs> to, to people, which is my job, I take it and I explain it to people in terms they can understand, they'll all go, yeah, 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 of course. Mm. Yeah. When is the book out? February. Wow. Can we pre-order it now? I mean, I've read it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, I uh, implore everyone to go and read it. Like I say, I don't think it's... It doesn't feel like it's a marketing book to me. It feels like anyone who has problems to solve. And um, Well, that's kind of the idea, yeah. <coughs> that's how you should handle your marketing problems, not like they're in a different world to the rest of us and a different world to real life. Yeah. Just the way you handle any problems is the way you should handle marketing then you'll become much more empowered well um, whenever it's out I think the 4th of Feb it might be out so uh, go and get it it is available then Dave Trot, thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure great thanks thank well. you thanks. amazing thanks to Dave there uh, you can find him on Twitter where he uh, tweets very regularly he's also got loads of videos on YouTube um, you can follow us at Ogilvy Consult UK on Twitter or don't forget to check out our blog o-behave.tumblr.com uh, Finally, big thank you to SoundLoud and Julian Goodkind for the music. Until next time, bye.